As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show, and what a weekend it was. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me is a man who I am assuming is still trying to work out what exactly happened this weekend, including involving people running marathons. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tay-Tay. I know exactly what's happening. We're in Backwards World. Hot snow falls up and hamburgers are eating people because (laughs) everything is gone cray-cray. And you gave a little nod there to marathon running. Uh, I've done a few in the past, but the, I wanted to bring up one that is not a marathon I did. It was the virtual London Marathon uh, on Sunday, Taylor. I don't know if hmm. you know, because obviously the marathon was cancelled, as most marathons have been cancelled. Uh, people were running it virtually all around the world yesterday, including my brother, who has never run a marathon. He's been injured many times, had many places in marathons, had to pull out. He finally got around to it at the age of 41. Very you nice. probably won't thank me for revealing that information to the masses on the podcast. But uh, anyway, that's what it is. And he, he ran the London Virtual Marathon yesterday, but he did a very clever thing with his route. You want to know about it? I do. He made it soccer themed. So he lives in South London, where we are Wimbledon fans. Uh, and he did a route where he could take in as many stadiums oh, as wow. possible on the route. So he started that's near... Genius. It's great. It's a really good idea. And it, he ran it with a friend, one of my best friends, actually, who is a Millwall fan, and he's a Wimbledon fan. So they started in southeast London. They went past uh, the Valley, Charlton Athletic, then to the New Den, Millwall, uh, along the Thames, and they went to Chelsea, to, uh, to Stamford Bridge. Then they went past Fulham. They went past QPR, Loftus Road. And they finished at New Plough Lane, uh, AFC Wimbledon's brand new stadium, which is going to host its first game on November 3rd. Nothing else significant happening that day, of course, November 3rd. Uh, <laughs> so, that, that's, uh, uh, so he had this really good route planned out. It went very well. Smartly, he had someone on a bike uh, riding with him, not only to, to, to give them drinks, but also to ride ahead yep. and to hit the button on traffic lights so they didn't have to wait for traffic lights. Genius. Genius idea. Is your brother a genius? Because all of this seems like, especially ending at, at Wimbledon Stadium, that feels like a good 
Like, it'll make you kick at the end, I feel like. But then having the person ride ahead, <laughs> figuring all this out, there's, there's some logistics involved. Is he a planner? Is that what I'm realizing? He is a significantly smarter person than me. <laughs> uh, so congratulations to Simon and Tom who did that run yesterday. Oh, and the, the, the other thing that didn't quite pan out, he actually organized with... A, we are Wimbledon co-owners uh, because we are shareholders of the fan-owned club. We started the club. We helped to do so. Uh, he had it organized so that he could finish the finish line being on the pitch. Whoa. No one else has been on the pitch yet, Taylor. It's barely, it's barely seeded in at the moment. Uh, unfortunately, building works prevented that from happening because they finished just outside the stadium, but that would have been pretty much the icing on the cake. But it was an amazing thing to do, I thought. And uh, uh, if you're not going to run a marathon in normal circumstances, I thought that was a pretty cool alternative. I, absolutely. That's a, and, I, and I do forget like just how many clubs there are in London. There's a great map showing all the different teams you could support if you live there. I appreciate mm. my quick Google search telling me that amongst teams uh, that operate in London is Everton. Didn't know that one. That seems like a surprise inclusion on the list. I'm, I'm not quite sure that's accurate. <laughs> uh, yeah, last time I checked, they weren't geographically based there, but most clubs have offices in London. There we go. Maybe that's it. Um, speaking of Everton, they have another good win. They continue to be maybe the most fun team in the Premier League. Uh, they are top of the table as well. Not too bad. West Ham this weekend beat Leicester 3-0. Chelsea hung four on a Crystal Palace side that have been very good so far. Ooh. Leipzig smashed Schalke, which is not that surprising of a, of a result. A little bit more normal, I guess, that one. Atleti drew with Villarreal, Lazio and Inter played to a 1-1 draw as well. Those are all games that we will not talk about again. I just want to get up front how many big results there were that on any other weekend might have been a thing we lead the show with or spend a lot of time with. (laughs) But there were so many strange and sort of unpredictable twists and turns this weekend that I just want to say commiserations to, say, Everton fans, West Ham fans, Chelsea fans, and the like, because... Instead, we're going to be looking at some of the uh, the bigger ones to start As off. As a testament, Taylor, to how crazy this weekend has been, West Ham have won their last two games against arguably Champions League uh, contending teams last season, 3-0 and 4-0. We're not even going to mention that. West Ham. David Moyes yeah. is West Ham. That's insane. And by the way, I do have a theory about the oh top two teams in the league um, at the moment. The Kazoo boys. You notice they both have Kazoo on their shirts. Kazoo are top of the league. They are the sponsor you need to get to the top of the league. I did have to Google what Kazoo are. They appear to be the UK's version of Carvana. Uh, More power Uh, to them because they are getting some wonderful publicity right now, and I've just helped them on that quest. I sort of assumed that you were talking about the musical instruments, and I was like, is that a new thing they do when they (laughs) score goals? Do they play those to celebrate? Your explanation makes way more sense. Yeah, well, whenever Villa score, they play Crosstown Traffic by Jimi Hendrix with a little kazoo solo. (laughs) Well, they should if they don't. (laughs) They should if they don't. We are going to talk about Villa later on, their big win over Liverpool, 7-2. It seems like that should be the one that we lead with, but instead we're going to start with Manchester United 1, Tottenham 6. And I'm Are you sitting with down. The, Are you sitting down. I, who boy, man, I was sitting down yesterday and then standing up a whole bunch, yelling at the TV, and then eventually standing up while walking the dog while the game finished because I couldn't handle it. Uh, I am a Man United fan. I'll say that again. Uh, I don't think that really factors into why we're leading with this one. The bigger reason for me, there are two reasons. The second one I'll get to when we talk Villa. The first is that I think this result was more shocking than Liverpool's loss, and I think sort of also more expected in some ways. And so that it was like shocking and yet not surprising to me is pretty indicative of the way this season has gone for Manchester United and to Tottenham to some extent. But I'll start with you, Ryan. What did you make of that result? Because when I turned it on, 
It came in late. I think it was already four to one. And I had to do a double take. I thought I had seen something wrong going back and rewatching it again. Uh, that result was maybe even a little bit flattering to Manchester United. Uh, what yeah. did you make overall of that result? I'm a child of the 90s, Taylor, and I grew up in the Alex Ferguson dominance period. Yeah. So the schadenfreude in me found it delightful. And I apologize. I wanted to get that out at the top. It was very funny to me to watch this happen. <laughs> I don't have a dog in this fight, of course, but I will just say that. But what I thought was... This was the worst, the first half, I think, for Manchester Mm -hmm. United was the worst I've seen Manchester United, I think, in my life. I can't, and I'm thinking, you know, there were a lot of down moments uh, under Van Gaal. There were a lot of, uh, you know, terrible games under Dave Moyes. I thought that was the worst from a professional soccer perspective. That performance was so terrible. And I think that goal, that equalizing goal that, uh, was it Ndombele who, who squeezed it over the line in the end? Yeah. The scrappy, awful goal, that was... Manchester United's worst defending I've ever seen as well. What, what Can you disagree specific- with either of those statements? So I don't like I don't disagree with either of them, but I don't I can't think of a worse game. I'll put it that way because even some of those games under Van Hall and David Moyes, there was at least an idea of what they were trying to do. Like if you asked me, I could say like, oh, they're trying to get the ball wide and cross it in, or they're trying to get more touches in the box. They don't want quick transitions or something like that. So I take your point then that looking at this one, I struggle to tell you what exactly they were trying to do. And I think that's kind of a hallmark of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's tenure so far. Mm. I don't know about the first goal, though. What was it in particular that made you think it was just so bad? It was just the head tennis between mm-hmm. Maguire and Bailey. Now, this, the throwing comes in, and Maguire and Bailey both get their head on it. Uh, sort of, I think Lamella runs past them to poach it, and Luke Shaw kind of gets an unfortunate assist on it. It's not just this really poor head tennis. The ball bounces. You're not supposed. I think the first thing they tell you when you start playing is don't let the ball bounce in the box if you're a defender. And Harry Maguire throws Luke Shaw to the floor like they're wrestling. It's just a cacophony of errors that happen in this. And I can't believe how bad it was. And what was worse was when the ball ended up in the net. If you freeze frame it a few frames after the ball's in the net, Taylor, every single Manchester United player has the same reaction. Arms up in the air, sort of that, that you know, mm-hmm. that sort of incredulous. That was someone else's fault. Look, yep. all of them in the box do it simultaneously. And I thought that is so, so poor. A really scrappy, poorly defended goal. And the defending was just poor this whole game. I just thought... yeah. This, this may, I was feeling for you in this game, Taylor. As much as I found it funny, I was feeling for you because I thought if I was a Manchester United fan, I would be absolutely furious watching that game. I would be livid, not just because of the fact that Manchester United are a team who spends so, so much. And that's mm-hmm. the back line they end up with. They've got a back line that's worse than the sort of Jones Smalling era. That's, you know, it, it's yeah. worse than that now. And they've spent even more than that now. It's humiliating. I think Manchester United are the biggest underachievers in world soccer. I think that's a fact that's been true maybe for a few seasons now. For the amount they spend, for their stature, for their heritage, to not even be near those top two teams in the Premier League, to be 33 points behind them and probably further behind them this season is outrageous. I think it's outrageous. Mm-hmm. And if that didn't make me... I'm getting, I'm getting angry just talking about it. And <laughs> as I said, I don't have a dog in the fight. But if that didn't make me angry thinking of that, what made me even angrier was when uh, the penalty was given up and Paul Pogba yeah. was smiling afterwards. The, pa- the, foul for, um, the foul on Ben Davies by Pogba, a you know, pretty comprehensive foul. It was definitely a penalty. Manchester United are 5-1 down at home and Paul Pogba's reaction is to smile. Come on. There's, it's interesting because I would say, like, looking at the Liverpool game for a moment, there is a decent amount of footage of Jurgen Klopp smiling when Villa score and when Liverpool make individual mistakes. 
And yet I'm with you that those are not the same thing because I think with mm-hmm. Jurgen Klopp, there's that is sort of his approach is to be a little bit smiley and then maybe scream at people smile. in the locker room. I also think he was sort of not as upset by that result as maybe many people might think he would be. But the difference there, I agree with you with Paul Pogba, is it's not just that that's the sort of sheepish, like the thing you do when you're embarrassed, like, ha 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 ha, I was just kidding, I didn't mean to. It was the the smiling, but then also the like, oh, well, like that's the way it goes. And I think that sort of mentality is is what you're talking about and what I would agree with, that the mentality not being there is a massive issue. I think the other, there's a couple of things I would say, some tactical, some non-tactical. The thing that sort of made things worse as a Manchester United fan, or at least I think we're very telling, is that the opposite number to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on the touchline was Jose Mourinho, sacked by Manchester Mm -hmm. United. He would argue unfairly because they didn't reinforce. They didn't give him better players. We see what happens there. With Tottenham, we know they've reinforced. They've brought in a lot of players this window. Manchester United, uh, as we record this, are currently trying to rectify that and have brought in, I think, Alex Tellez. But still, Tottenham have their business sorted. They've got some, yes, yes, specifically for Luke Shaw. But Tottenham have their business sorted. But it's not just that. It's that I want to go with like the all or nothing narrative for a moment, which we both watched it. We reviewed every single episode for this show. Mm. When Mourinho comes in, he has an, like the very first training session is you all are too nice. You're too friendly. No one ever yelled at me in the touchline or on the touchline. No one ever yelled at me in the tunnel. You don't foul. You you kind of give up a little bit. He didn't like their lack of fight. And I think to your point about Manchester United in the 90s, that that is the origin of the lads, it's Tottenham approach from Sir mm-hmm. Alex Ferguson of just like this is a team that we know can be got at. We know they're vulnerable. We'll find a way to make it happen. Genuinely, I feel like after this result, you could say, lads, it's Manchester United. And I think that's the point you're getting at is that this yeah. team feels like they cannot perform. And I just I, forgive me for continuing on with this one for a moment, but the Mourinho, you all have to be, I can't say the word on this show, but let's just say jerks. He wanted them to be meaner. He wanted them to be nastier. That was so evident in this game that his philosophy is taking root at least to some extent, because first off, they go down one nil in the first two minutes via penalty. There is an idea that in the past, maybe that's it. Maybe they collapse. This game finishes three nil. That's all she wrote. There is a like almost immediate fight back, they equalize. But there's other moments, like Serge Aurier uh, in the first 10 minutes or so has a desperation, like full sprint slide tackle on Marcus Rashford to stop a counter. He does that successfully. A few minutes later, uh, uh, Bruno Fernandes plays himself out of pressure, seems like he's going to launch a counterattack, and Hoiberg just runs through, pulls him back, knocks him down, doesn't concede, or concedes a free kick, but doesn't allow the counter to go on. Mm-hmm. I think the Spurs' second goal, which is the Harry Kane foul, picks it back up, restarts it immediately, plays in song, Contrast that with Manchester United get a free kick later on. And I believe Devinson Sanchez just boots the ball away in frustration, but also to kill time and delay things. And there's just a ruthlessness. There's a cynicism about Tottenham that I don't think has been there. And I think it, it stood out all the more because it's definitively not there for Manchester United right now. And that lack of an approach for Man United, I think, is really obvious and probably also fueling some of the frustration. Yeah, definitely. And the narrative around this game, for obvious reasons, is that it's a big Manchester United uh, loss. But we have to give Tottenham credit for the win for the reasons you've stated there. And, you know, Son, who is absolutely the star of that team once again, I think he's a bigger star than Harry Kane at this point. They were they were a cynical team, as you say. They were really got on the counter-attack. They all wanted it. And Hoiberg, as you mentioned there, he's getting better with every game. He got pretty poor reviews in his first outing for Spurs, but seems to be a really important part of that team now. He just looks so much more composed. And uh, the cliche, which I hate to 
excuse, but I always do. They wanted it more in this game, didn't they? They absolutely wanted it more. And I'm ju- I was just embarrassed for Manchester United in this game, particularly, I mean, no one covered themselves in glory, but I mean, Maguire and Shaw, uh, I mean, maybe Aaron Wambazaka was the only defender who didn't completely mess things up in this game. Maguire giving, you know, with the, with the, Terrible, taking down his own player for that first goal that I mentioned, the first Tottenham goal. And then uh, for the for the quick free kick, which Harry Kane took to put in some for the second one, Maguire gave away the foul, didn't he? And he was, found mm. himself well out of position. But it was Luke Shaw on this game. I couldn't believe how often yeah. he was out of position. And not just for recovery. There Was a, was yeah. it the Aurea goal where, um, you know, mm-hmm. oh, Aurea, by the way, who had a very good game, he found himself in... There was there were times when he had twenty or thirty yards with no one near him, absolutely no one near him. The fourth goal, Aurier, he's got the, the ball's pinged to him, and, it, and there's no Man United shirt thirty yards. I have him. I have Dom, an explanation for you if you'd and like. Don Bailey picks him out there. Yeah, okay, I'll finish my rant. But uh, <laughs> meanwhile, while that's happening, Shaw, Luke Shaw is just mm-hmm. jogging through the middle of the park. Yeah. Maguire has to go over to cover for him. There's no one on Sun in the box when this happens, and he makes the run, and Matic loses him, and you know that goal that goal goes in. But we had we had a situation there where Maguire was moving over to left back to cover Shaw, who wasn't. It was no reason for him to be central. And it wasn't at that point it was happening. That wasn't an isolated incident. He was drifting out all the time. And Serge Aurier was looking like the world's greatest. He was looking like Cafu out there because he, he had so much space to operate in. It was, it was madness. It was. And this is where I watched that again because I kept trying to figure out there were multiple occasions in that second half. And this is something you've already pointed out in which Luke Shaw is between the two center backs. Luke Shaw, the left back, is between the two center backs with a frightening amount of regularity. And so trying to figure out why that was the case, watching it again, I think you can also see Jose Mourinho knowing this Manchester United team, knowing how he wants to sort of break them down and cause them problems, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer really, really struggling to adapt to what Mourinho was throwing at him. Going back a little bit for a moment, I think Mourinho's basic plan was he had Sissoko and Dombele Lamella basically sitting in on Matic and Pogba, uh, which then makes Bruno have to drop deep. If Bruno's dropping deeper, he's going to be on the ball more, but it also means he's on the ball further away from goal. And I also think because of that approach, it leaves Eric Lamella with lots of space. And he kept popping up all over the place with nobody around him, I think because if there was that mismatch at halftime. This is at least my read on this from what I saw. I think I'm correct in saying that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer gives responsibility of Eric Lamella to Luke Shaw. Ta-da. No idea why. But Luke Shaw in that second half is consistently paying attention to Eric Lamella, who then is going to do the obvious thing of move central. Luke Shaw will follow him. And now there's a ton of space out wide. And that is such a head scratcher to me as to why Ole Gunnar Solskjaer thought, I'll have my left back go track somebody central and not tell anybody to cover. And it just felt like a plan born of the moment without much execution or much explanation. And I think that goes a long way towards explaining what Manchester United sort of currently are under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Yeah, and I think that was their biggest downfall in the game, the space they left on that right channel. Because it's, as you say, that, that was an intentional organizational decision they mm-hmm. did. It wasn't, they were, he wasn't in a recovering position when he was going central like that. That was what he was told to do, presumably. And he wasn't told to jog very slowly at all times. Maybe he was told to go a bit faster than that. But hey, that's just Luke Shaw. Um, but it was just... I'll use the word again. It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing defending. It was an embarrassing performance. So my, my question for you, Taylor, is how much is this Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's fault? And how much is this the player's fault? How much is this, I don't know, Ed Woodward's fault? I don't think this is me being overly emotional when I say that you could ask me 
is it Ole's fault? Like, is it this person's fault? Is it that person's fault? And I would probably just say yes to all of it because <laughs> I think Solskjaer is a problem. I don't think he's necessarily the problem. I think that would be Ed Woodward, the lack of a director of football, the lack of any sort of vision because it always gets to this debate of – Will they need to spend money? Well, they have spent money. That back line is what, like 175 million pounds or something like that? Like they've spent plenty. It just doesn't seem to have come to fruition in any logical way. And I think part of that is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer sort of failing to get everybody on board. I have to believe – I've asked a few people this. I have yet to know for sure. I'm hoping to find out more this week. They really look like a team that has fun in training. They look like a team that – Plays a lot of small-sided, you know, like like uh, we call it Thunderdome, but it's like two teams are on. When one team scores, the other team goes off, another team comes on, and you kind of cycle through. They feel like a team that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wants scoring goals and having fun in training, but isn't necessarily working on tactics and working on any sort of approach. So I think his tactical setup is not helping. I think the investment, such as it's been, has not been great. I think the lack of vision overall isn't particularly good, and I think that's ble- bleeding into the squad. We haven't even noted that... Um, Halftime, I think Nemanja Matic and Bruno Fernandes subbed off by Solskjaer. Matic, because basically Jose Mourinho knew how to sort of exacerbate his vulnerabilities. And he is like having to cover Son Heung-min at one point is not a foot race he's ever going to win. But by all accounts, Bruno Fernandes comes off because he got into a screaming match with Harry Maguire at halftime, berating his teammates. You could see the frustration heading into the half um, and I guess couldn't calm down or wouldn't calm down to the point where it didn't feel like he could go out and be a productive member of the team. But that's... I would say their best, most creative player is already sort of at his breaking point with a lot of the players in this team and with the approach. And I think that speaks to a lot of sort of vulnerability behind the scenes and a lot of weakness within the team. I think like another good example here would be Luke Shaw. Again, not even his positioning, not even his, you know, wandering approach to defending at times. But there's the moment in the second half that, first of all, I think should have been a red card. Uh, but he, he realizes he's going to lose or just doesn't want to compete with Lucas Mora in a foot oh, race. Lucas Mora lazy. Is, is about to round the corner, isn't necessarily in on goal because there are other defenders that could theoretically make a covering play. So I think that's why it's not a red. But, but Shaw just does a full Cobra Kai and sweeps the leg. And... <laughs> And it's not a yellow, I guess, because it's just like a dangerous tackle or whatever. But I think it or it is a yellow, not a red. But it, it could have been a red in my mind. But the thing that was really, really telling, and I know I messaged you about this, but I wanted to explain it here. If you watch the replay of that, when it's sort of the camera facing Shaw as he sweeps Mora's leg, you see Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in the background, and he looks not frustrated, not angry, not annoyed, but just disgusted by that moment. And this is an Ole Gunnar Solskjaer who, if you want to find the clip, you can. When he was playing for Manchester United, I forget who it was against, but the, the team counters off of a Manchester United cross. United had everybody forward. Solskjaer runs back like 90 yards to make a tackle outside of the box, gets a red card, but instead of it being a clear goal-scoring opportunity, is now a free kick outside the box. That was his sort of approach to Manchester United, his level of energy. And I have to believe he was kind of thinking of that in that moment as he sees Luke Shaw just say like, nah, I'm good, and breaks a leg, or tries to at least. I think that one was against Newcastle, back when Man United Mm -hmm. and Newcastle used to be sort of a a, a real top-of-the-table occasion. And that's a good reference point. But they were quite different circumstances as well. Oli... Mm -hmm you know, running his guts out to get back to the last man to very much tactically foul to prevent a goal. This, to me, just felt more lazy. It wasn't the last man. It wasn't as if Lucas Moore was running out on his own. As you say, there were other players coming back as well, hence not the red card. 
it just felt like oh, it felt very cynical and very very disappointing and also if you look I, I implore you also to look at the slow motion and replay of their incident because of the look on Lucas Mora's face as yeah. well he's doing the smile that David Lewis did when he was pretending to be injured on the floor that time it's very amusing. <laughs> um, I don't want to go too much longer on this one because we've already said plenty. The last thing I would like to say, we've talked a decent about, about Manchester United. We talked a little bit about Tottenham, or maybe more than a little bit. But I just wanted to end here with my feeling that this is probably the victory that Jose Mourinho is most pleased with in a very long time. Like maybe going back to his second stint at Chelsea, maybe even before that. Just because, not just because it's a, a, a team that he used to coach that sacked him. That there has been so much speculation about is his brand of football done? Is it yeah. is it is it past its prime? Has the game moved on without him? Not saying that one result sort of means like nope, never mind, everything's great. But I think you saw Tottenham not just being a Jose team, not just sitting in and then looking to counter and being ultra defensive. They pressed Manchester United. They marked high. They caused problems. They shifted points of attack. They shifted their defensive approach. There was a lot of variability to this Tottenham team. It's why I think they will finish top four. It's why I've had a very strong feeling about them since the start of this season but I think a lot of that is Jose Mourinho getting the team to buy in bringing in the players he needs to implement his style and his system and, and adapt it a little bit and that's why at the end he's he's hugging all of his players he's but it's not a sort of gloating gleefulness he teases Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in the post-match interview he pats him on the head which I think was a very deliberate thing <laughs> but aside from that it, it's much you can just see the like he is trying to contain his relief and euphoria to be a professional manager and just be like, yeah, good game, good, good game. But right at the very end when they walk down the tunnel, he hugs Hugo Lloris. We know from the All or Nothing documentary, Lloris is a big believer in Mourinho's approach. He's a very emotional guy. The two of them just like emphatically hugging and not letting go felt to me like this team is into it. They like Mourinho. Mourinho likes them. And Dombele is suddenly playing really well. I think if you're a Spurs fan... You only have reasons for optimism. If you're a Man United fan, maybe the opposite of that is true. So with that said, Ryan, anything else to get to from this game? I think, Taylor, you remember in All or Nothing when Jose Mourinho was uh, watching the TV and all the reports of his hiring and he went and switched it off and yeah. swore. I think on Monday morning, he switched the TV back on. I think he probably did. That is a safe bet, Mr. Bailey. Much more Premier League, much more we can review still to come. But first, a word from today's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. And we are back to discuss Aston Villa 7, Liverpool 2. As I said in the beginning, uh, this is maybe like a bigger result in that it's the current, the reigning champions being knocked off by a team that was promoted last year, but there was some speculation about what's going to happen this time around. But watching it again, I, I, 
do not think, and I think maybe we'll disagree on this one, Ryan. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. I don't think this was that bad of a loss, which is insane to say. But there are moments when I think Liverpool could have scored four and five. I think they made some individual mistakes and I think weren't as sharp as they needed to be. And I think Villa were outstanding in this game. And so to some extent, some of the narrative about like, do they need to change their approach? Do they need more players? I don't know if I buy into that so much. I think it was maybe just a one-off result in which they weren't quite up for it and didn't get some things right, and Villa absolutely did. That is my read, and I'm, I would like to get more into some of the nitty-gritty on it. But first, Ryan, I wanted to hear what you thought about this game. It's an interesting read, Taylor. Right. Uh, the reigning champions losing 7-2 <laughs> to a team who survived by the skin of their mm. teeth last season. The worst ever loss for a defending champion in the Premier League. Not such a bad loss. Interesting take. But I do take your point in that, well, what, three or four of the goals were massive deflections. They had everything, every yep, exactly. bad bit of luck that could have happened to Liverpool happened in this game. Yeah. So I'll give them that. And they did come up against a Villa side who, you know, Worked really hard, obviously very well coached, lots and lots of running. But also, I think this did reveal some weakness on Liverpool's part. And I've been the, I've been honking the narrative that Liverpool won't do as well this season, as indeed all the big teams won't do as well this season, which is kind of what we're seeing. I wasn't expecting yeah. it to see this early in the season no, because exactly. of the lack of preseason, because of you know the way games are piling up and there's less less time on the training ground, etc. and so on. But with Liverpool here... You know, I've, I've said before how they won everything in 18 months. And where do you go from there? And there's a feeling for me with Jurgen Klopp that there's no plan B. And there's not a lot of depth and not a whole lot of depth in this squad. So when things go wrong and when you're playing that ridiculously high line and another team figures out how to get past that high line, there's no way around it. And this team, this Liverpool team have been very patchy at the back this season. It's almost as if they've regressed two or three seasons it, it's you know it's all I'm not going to say this like the Brendan Rodgers defending it's not quite that bad but it's almost as if all the good work they've done for defensive solidity in the past two seasons has has regressed in this season you look at the game against Leeds conceding three goals against newly promoted Leeds even against Arsenal if Arsenal had been more clinical they'd have been in a lot more trouble defensively than they were and I think they were exposed once again in this game there was there was problems all over the field but you know Fabinho not doing Fabinho things in the middle for example not giving the defense enough cover but there there were defenders here who had real off days with Gomez and yeah. Van Dijk in particular and it seemed like our um it seemed like Aston Villa had a real answer for their fullbacks as well because Trent Alexander and uh, Andy Robertson were, were no good in this game either so I get your point that it wasn't as bad as 7-2 would suggest, but I think it does suggest there are problems which will persist in this team. All right. I, 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 can, I can agree with some of that, um, and I, I, I look forward to talking about what some of those problems might be and how they could resolve them. Um, I, I did want to sort of add a little bit more defense to my statement because you're right. On the surface, that is a ludicrous assertion that Villa beating Liverpool 7-2, not that bad for Liverpool. But I think I think two things for, for me that kind of I kept in my mind watching this. Number one, I do think that when you're a gegenpressing team that are playing this high octane, go at your opponent, try to cause problems. If you're doing that from behind and especially being behind several goals, I do think that it can become a problem of you're sending everybody forward. Everybody's so desperate to make something happen that it leaves you vulnerable. And at least a couple of the Villa goals are because Liverpool just have numbers forward. They don't have the positional discipline they normally would. So I think when you're chasing with this system, it can be an issue, which maybe gets to the idea of do they need a plan B. But I also think Villa's 
defensive approach explains a lot of why Liverpool kept being vulnerable. I think Villa's tactics were were pretty straightforward. I think they were also really smart. They were in a 4-2-3-1. Ross Barkley, as the sort of number 10 in that one, would consistently step up to partner Ollie Watkins when they were defending high. That yeah. meant they were basically switching off who was sitting on Fabinho. So Liverpool no longer have him as an option. But then Grealish and Trezeguet, uh, the wingers, would, would drift wide and sit in a little bit more, which limits the effectiveness of playing the ball wide to Robertson or Trent Alexander-Arnold. I also think Liverpool really wanted to keep it away from Jack Grealish's side, which is why Andy Robertson was so important to them in the first half. But if you take those two fullbacks out or at least make it more difficult for them to drive forward with the ball and you don't have that midfield pivot, it means other people are having to drop in or fullbacks are having to take some risks or center backs are having to play some risky balls. And I think Villa's defensive approach was, I think, a lot more disciplined and hardworking than maybe Jurgen Klopp expected it to be. I thought John McGinn yeah. and uh, uh, who's the other midfielder with him? Uh, I'm, forgive me, I'm blanking uh, on the name. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, I thought they were both like phenomenal in their defensive work rate, in putting out fires, in being physical when they needed to, but not overly physical. So I thought Villa kind of set up perfectly to punish Liverpool, especially once they were uh, a couple goals ahead. Yeah. Uh, I think Liverpool, as you've already said, could have taken their chances better, could have had more opportunities. Villa have some fortunate deflections. So maybe it was a bad loss, but not a earth-shaking, we've got to change everything loss, if, that's, yeah. if that makes sense. Sure. And once again, uh, the narrative here being in Liverpool lost, but this was full credit to Villa. As I've said before, they were very good. They made some really good signings this season. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Watkins and Barkley have both massively improved this team. Matty Cash, I thought, was excellent. He was the best yeah. back on the field mm-hmm. in this game with his, those diagonal passes seem to be the key to un- breaking that um, that high, Liverpool high line. It seemed to happen over and over again in this game. He was sort of key to exploiting that. And you think that how, you know, when Dean Smith uh, took over this team, they were like mid-table, lower lower uh, than that in the championship. And look where they are now beating yeah. the champions. I think that's pretty impressive progression. It's even been impressive progression in the last few months, I would argue, as well. So I, I'm very impressed with Villa. They're, they're outdoing themselves. But at the same time, I will say, uh, I'll reiterate that I think Liverpool let themselves down in a lot of positions here. A lot of just poor performances that have collided with one another. And I think Fabinho, who I mentioned earlier, I want to pick him out again because I think he did a particularly poor job of covering the back line. And I think it was the fifth goal, uh, when Ross, one of the one of the three big deflections, Ross mm-hmm. Barkley's, when it's deflected off of um, Trent Alexander-Arnold. They had the, uh, who, who was it, Grealish and Barkley, I think had a nice sort of passing movement on the edge of the box. But they both passed to one another by completely bypassing Fabinho, who sort of ran between the two of them. It was a kind of defending, Taylor, that I might do in the rec league when I'm like, I don't really want to land a tackle right now because it's turf and I'll cut my knee up. I'm just going to run vaguely near them. That was what Fabinho was doing. It was, it was pretty feckless stuff. He doesn't even try to lay one on them. And he's outside the box. He could have done it. And, uh, you know, uh, a, a defensive, a Busquets or a, or a, or a peak, you know, big, big defensive midfielder would have, would have done that. So yeah. I was pretty disappointed in him there. And, and I think that sort of put a lot of pressure on, on, on the two two fellas behind him as well. And Adrian, obviously, uh, there's been a lot of uh, criticism of him, for particularly for giving away that first goal, that yeah. terrible pass across goal. He, he deserves that. But even if they had their first choice keeper, Liverpool, in this game, I still think it would have been five or six, arguably still. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. I think because there was... Not really an answer for Liverpool when it came to how do you deal with Jack Grealish. I thought he was immense for Villa in that attack. And then I think there was also for Liverpool, 
just a, a sort of lack of bite when it was necessary to deal with some of that physicality from McGinn, from Douglas Louise. And I think that they they just they didn't necessarily cover themselves in glory, certainly, but I think there was also not quite that level of, of, of grit of fight that we sometimes see from Liverpool, I think just because maybe they were totally surprised by what Villa were, were throwing at them and the problems yeah. it was causing. Yeah, definitely so. And I think, yeah, there was, there was just, uh, I, I think it, is it too easy just to say that everything, all the bad luck went against them? Sure, the deflections were bad luck, but there, there yeah. was more they could have done defensively. I think they looked tired. I think that it's showing that they're not. And I think I, I heard on a on a rival podcast that also has Total in its name how um, <laughs> the, the big effect of this season is not having as much time on the training field. You know, yeah. going over those drills over and over again usually pays dividends and the players simply aren't doing that in the moment and they haven't had chance to rest and recuperate and they have had a virtually no preseason. So when you get something like the fourth Aston Villa goal for one of Ollie Watkins' many goals that day with the free kick, when you look at the ball going in, Liverpool are so slow to react off the line and sort of Trezeguet meets the ball at the back, uh, back stick and he's got no marker on him at all. And then there's, you yeah. know, this is this is the goal where Jurgen Klopp was smiling afterwards that we sort of referenced earlier, and I think he was smiling, thinking, "What are my players doing? They were they were a half a second off the pace there." Yeah, oh. and and that's really I think problematic uh, because at least a few of the Villa goals, and I'm not trying to take anything away from them, but they are they speak to the importance of confidence. That as you if you feel like every shot we're taking seems to be going in, I'm going to shoot more. I think several of those goals. If it's nil-nil or Villa are losing one-nil, I don't think they take those chances because I think they're not – they're aware that like, oh, we're not going to get as many opportunities. They could be at a premium. We've got to be really smart with this. So I'm not going to shoot from a tight angle or I'm not going to shoot from outside the box. I'm going to look for a pass. I'm going to slow it down. And I think Liverpool thrive in their opposition throwing it down and moving the ball. That lets them get in their position and then launch those sort of counterattacks and cause problems. Villa just kept trying stuff. And I think because, to your point, Liverpool weren't able to slow them down, weren't able to really make them second-guess those decisions. And then at a certain point, you have a big enough lead that you don't have to worry about it. I think a lot of those chances Liverpool, uh, Villa probably don't take if it's nil-nil. But when it's 3-1 or whatever, I think they're more inclined to shoot. And I guess clearly the ball was more inclined to go in. <laughs> Indeed. That's and talking happens. of that, um, Liverpool, uh, sorry, Aston Villa had 11 shots on target. They scored seven goals. That's a fairly good conversion rate. Liverpool had eight shots on target. So it shows that Villa were taking a lot more of the chances, albeit quite a lot of them deflections. We'll, we'll add that caveat. Mm-hmm. But Villa had 30% possession in this game. And it didn't feel like it, did it? No, it really didn't. Even in the beginning stages of that game, when they, when the commentator was like, "Oh, Liverpool getting their customary like possession figures in the first fifteen minutes or so," I was really shocked by those numbers because I think it was already like sixty-six to thirty-four or something, and right. yet it had felt like Villa were causing problems and opening uh, Liverpool up a little bit and getting some time on the ball. I think it's just as always the case that. Liverpool inevitably are going to be more dominant. So maybe I was just focusing on the Villa strengths and not Liverpool growing into the game. Yeah. What can there we, we say? are. I mean, so I, I just will say again that I don't think Jurgen Klopp is, is going to be sacked. I don't know if I would say the same of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, though I don't know that's the solution. I don't think this leads to like structural changes at the club, whereas I think those are definitely needed at Manchester United. So I would say Liverpool fans may be a bit more embarrassed by that result, but I don't think they will remember it quite as long as Man United fans. That's my final takeaway on that game. Are you buying a general of this, generally of this weekend in the Premier League and maybe beyond? Are you buying into this narrative that it's going to be a very unusual season, that the big dogs are going, there's going to be a lot more parity? I wrote an article, I'm very pleased to say, that how much more parity there's going to be in the league. I wasn't expecting it to hit 
now. I was expecting it to hit around Christmas time. So I'm shocked that it's come so early. Mm. But are you thinking we're going to have a very topsy-turvy league this year? I think through, I would kind of take the opposite approach. I think through the Christmas and the holiday period, probably it's going to be a bit more open and strange just because I think, yeah, you'll continue to have teams dropping points and there's going to be so many games in such a tight period of time. I didn't look it up, but I'm just going to go ahead and assume that Liverpool have played more games than Villa. I think that's probably the same with Bayern Munich versus Hertha Berlin, and I think that explains some of what happened in that game as well. Yeah. Uh, so, But I do think, yes, with the abbreviated preseason, with players coming in, players going out, international breaks, lots of games piling up, I think it's going to be a very strange season. Maybe not quite as strange as it was this weekend, but I do think as the kind of fatigue takes its toll. I think teams that aren't as deep will probably start to fall off a little bit. And I think the kind of perennial top four contenders will, some of them at least, rise to the top. I don't know if a certain red team from Manchester will do that. I think a certain <laughs> blue team from Manchester will. Let's yeah. talk briefly about that one, shall we? Leeds won, Manchester City won. Yeah, that was a nice turn up, wasn't it? I mean, of all of all the games we've discussed so far, lots and lots of goals. Mm-hmm. Could this have been the most entertaining game of the weekend, Taylor? So, full disclosure, Ryan sent me his notes for this weekend for this show, uh, and he suggested that it might be. And I said, "That is your Man City bias, my friend. Get <laughs> out of here." And then I watched the game. You are not wrong. You are not it- wrong, and that is a very strange thing to say, at least in the Premier League. I think the Bayern Hertha game was pretty fascinating. But for a one-to-one draw that you might see that and think like, oh, it was raining a bunch, so it was probably like like not very good quality, neither team really got that many chances, it was probably pretty dull. It was raining, and I think at times it wasn't great quality, but it made it really, really fun because there's lots of posts getting hit, there's physical challenges, there's good chances for both teams, there's City being dominant, then Leeds somehow finding their way back into it and then becoming dominant and City having to respond. It was a really, really fun game to watch, so credit to you, Mr. Bailey, for pointing that out. My city bias. I'm a neutral, sir. <laughs> sure, sure. I'm a neutral. Sure, sure. I'm from the neutral planet. I'm grey. <laughs> Tell my wife hello. <laughs> so what What were some of your favorite things, or what did you find so interesting about this game? Were there any particular performances or players or approaches or moments? What, what did you enjoy, just, Ryan Bailey? Just to say, a very fun rainy day game. A nice game that reminds me why I live in Carolina and not in, in the UK. Ooh, a little southern twang there on the Carolina. Carolina, yeah, um, but lots of lots of countering from both teams, two high lines, lots of adventure from both sides. Just sort of the bit what you'd expect from Bielsa against Guardiola, the master and the apprentice, if you will. Uh, I think this game really, really delivered. And once again, I am shocked at how good Leeds are and how competitive they yep. are in this league. My narrative uh, before this season was that oh, people think they're going to be really good. I think they're going to struggle. I think you know they've got a, basically a championship level team. I was wrong. There's a, a few performers here who were excellent. Ailing had an excellent game. Rodrigo obviously hitting the woodwork a couple of times and getting a goal as well. Uh, I think he uh, is his first goal in like 10 years, or longer than that in the Premier League. Um, did you know Leeds have got as many Spanish internationals as Barcelona in their squad? I did Focus. not, but that does make sense. So it's Leeds are Spain and then Wolves are Portugal? <laughs> correct, correct. Cool. The Iberian right. Peninsula in the Premier League is uh, is alive and well. But Leeds not not just um, accounting for themselves well, but if you if you didn't know if you were watching this game through foggy glasses and you just saw 
the two teams playing, you didn't know who they were. You wouldn't know that one was newly promoted and one was one of the richest teams on the planet who have ideas to win everything. It was so even. Leeds finished with 53% possession against Manchester City. When does that happen against Manchester City? They were so good at getting the ball forward so quickly. I love how positive they are. They win the ball straight away if someone's looking for a positive forward pass and someone's making a run. There's no sideways nonsense with this team. They, they, as, as I said about Villa with Liverpool, they know that they seem to stop the opposition fullbacks and catch them out quite a lot as well. And also a little taste of classic dirty leads with Dallas putting one on Bernardo late on as well. That was, uh, that was entertaining for the neutral as well. I just thought it was a very, very uh, impressive game all around and particularly kudos to Leeds for uh, holding their own in this one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like what we were talking about with Villa. I think it's, it's a clear and understood tactical approach where the players know what they're supposed to do and know how they're supposed to play, but it's augmented by a little bit of physicality and a willingness to kind of get into it when it comes to those physical battles. And then it's also just a like technical belief uh, for Villa. Mm. I think like specifically, like especially with Jack Grealish, it's the ability to take people on, find little pockets of space and then play balls in. And just sort of when you think he's shut down, he's not. For Leeds, they certainly have players who are capable of doing that, maybe not to Grealish's level. But the thing that I kept noticing was maybe like 20 to 30 yard passes that were just absolutely driven, just like yeah. line drive passes that are killed instantly, settled and then laid off or played quickly. And the sort of there's something very, very striking about a team that hit the ball as hard as they can with their passes and yet retain possession. And that and I take your point that that is a more like they were wearing white. It was a more like Real Madrid sort of thing of bringing <laughs> the ball down and then pinging the ball and then bringing it down and keeping it moving in the rain as well. In the rain as well, and it leads to some chances. It leads to some chances when leads maybe aren't as like precise as they need to be defensively. But I just think the the way they move the ball is so much fun and so proactive. And I think to some extent, Manchester City maybe weren't expecting it as much. And yeah. it is where I think once they went ahead 1-0... It had this air of Man City have been pressing and pressing and pushing and pushing Raheem Sterling with a great, I would say, solo effort on that one, even though I'm sure there's an assist in there. But it's a feint and then a feint and then a shot from the top of the box. It's a great finish. And it almost felt like that sort of old thing of, all right, we scored. We're Man City. They're going to crumble a little bit. We'll get another one in the second half. We got this. And instead, Leeds respond with a lot of fight and a lot of belief. And it's another reason why I think they will be just fine this season. And I believe are currently... Decently high on the table in a position where Manchester United would be very happy to be. Definitely. That was an interesting first goal as well because I didn't feel like it was a very City goal. The way that uh, Sterling executed it in particular, like he could have passed to Mares, who was mm-hmm. open and in a be- arguably a better position near the edge of the box as well, but went for it. Uh, wasn't sort of the Guardiola philosophy, I would argue, but all the same could finish, as you say. Um, I thought City had sort of two big problems in this match. It was their fullbacks who were caught out a lot. Uh, Benjamin Mendy didn't cover himself in glory, not only with his distribution in this game, but also getting caught out position quite a lot in particular, I thought. And also... On the other end of the field, the finishing. I think Torres wasn't up to much in this game. Rio Myers was okay, but and Sterling, I thought, wasted quite a lot of opportunities. And it got me thinking, Taylor. Yep. Imagine if Erling Herland, Harland, don't <laughs> yeah. know how to pronounce his name anymore. Um, imagine if he was in this team. Imagine. Yeah. And because of the amount of chances that City waste up top, and which, oh, granted, you know, they don't have their top two strikers available at the moment. We'll, we'll give them that. But if they had someone as clinical as him, I think they'd be absolutely unstoppable right now. 
Yeah, he's pretty good. He's pretty good, he's with, good. with the shooting and the scoring. Which even is really, though... now, now I say it, it, it sounds like a really simple and dumb thing to say. Imagine if they had a really good player. But <laughs> I hope you get my point. I, I do, though, because like Holland or even Robert Lewandowski, who is the difference maker for Bayern Munich this weekend. Yeah, right. I think if you have a player that you know is going to finish if you give them the chance, or at the very least will finish one out of every two. Uh, I think and Lewandowski has hit some absurd number of penalties consistently. Like You need that player. Mm-hmm. I do think they have it in Sergio Aguero, but you're right. Uh, there are injury concerns there. And then Gabriel Jesus, there are injury and consistency issues. Uh, I still like him quite a bit, but I take your point yeah. that if you had that big striker who is also very technical and fast, I think that probably only leads to more goals for Man City. Which is also, um, now I think about it, not technically a Guardiola-style player because the last time I remember they had a big uh, oh, yeah. impressive striker at Barcelona. They didn't get along so well. Yeah. Uh, aside from that Dallas tackle on Bernardo that I mentioned near the end, which was to say, was uh, uh, that's how you're supposed to do a, a naughty foul, uh, Luke Shaw, by the way. That's how you do it. <laughs> uh, my other favourite moment... Um, was the De Bruyne free kick where it looked like he oh, was yeah. going to put it into the box and he, he went for it and hit the post. This was the one moment where I was let down by Leeds. Did you see what the two men in the wall did? They put a two-man wall up. No. And they parted like the sea. Uh-oh. They completely both sort of turned away from the ball uh, and, and gave gave the ball a free flight to hit that post. So I thought that was quite impressive. Like, why have a two-man wall if they're just going to move out the way when the ball comes in? Yeah, I think uh, Melia, the Leeds goalkeeper, also didn't necessarily cover himself in glory on that sure. one. I don't know if that was them seeing footage of him. It's it's his fourth appearance for Leeds, so there is some footage available. I don't know if, if maybe Man City saw that and thought, he's always going to cheat one way or he's going to try to anticipate, but he definitely is expecting a ball roughly in the vicinity of the back post, and he sort of takes that one little step to the left, anticipating that, and then Kevin yep. De Bruyne puts it to his right, hits yep. it off the post, that was, and then I think he has a giveaway as well in possession, Melia. So it was a rough start, but in the end, I think he'll take a one-to-one draw against Man City. Yeah, definitely. I think he took a few risks actually, Melia, in yeah. this game, and I think it was De Bruyne who took the ball off him in that um, instance you mentioned there. And it's, it's uh, these things happen when you've yep. got these crazy keepers who will only pass it a few yards out of their box. Hey. But that can be scary, Ryan, and it is Halloween this month. I've transitioned us along, uh, which is the scariest month. We all know that, except for uh, April 15th. Tax season, always kind of scary. But Policy Genius would like to make this month slightly less scary by making life insurance less scary or the process of getting life insurance because that's what they are all about. You could save 50% or more by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance. When you're shopping for a policy that could last for more than a decade, those savings really start to add up. Thing I love about Policy Genius, Taylor, they make it easy. Shopping for life insurance, it can be daunting, but they Mm -hmm. combine a cutting-edge insurance marketplace with the help from licensed experts. They save you time, they save you money, they save you red tape. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork, all the nonsense. They find that best policy for you, and that's all I want. And I want it for as little as $1 a day, and Policy Genius deliver that too. I think that's fair. I mean, yeah, can't argue favor in that, can you? I, you can. So if you're, say, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer frantically trying to figure out what to do with this current team and the players that are coming in, you maybe don't have time to shop in detail for life insurance. So again, <laughs> you can go to Policy Genius where they will do that work for you and handle the red tape. If you need life insurance, go to policygenius.com right now to get started. Again, you could save 50% or more by comparing quotes. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Ryan, hopefully we have gotten our Premier League coverage right so far. Let's move 
to the continent. Let's start in Germany and let's start with Borussia Dortmund. Uh, they hand Freiburg a 4-0 loss. It takes them a while. And for a decent chunk of this game, it felt like, oh, here we go. This is Dortmund sort of dealing with a defensive opponent, not really finding a way through, getting frustrated. Lucien Favre isn't adapting. And then they end up scoring four. And I'm inclined to say that it's all Gio Reyna. So would you agree with me that America is going to win the World Cup solely because of Gio Reyna? Uh, absolutely, hundred okay, cool. percent. Cool, cool, yes. cool, cool, cool. Uh, this was a uh, this was uh, part of the Borussia Dortmund narrative roller coaster, which hit, hit its trough uh, last week uh, when when there was all calls for Lucien Favre to be mm-hmm. fired. It seemed like the first half of this game, it was more of the same. Borussia Dortmund are useless. Who are these babies they keep putting out on the field? Uh, now look at it, four nil win with uh, um, the World Cup uh, USA's. Um, Captain, in the, is he going to be the captain when they win the World Cup? Or so? Presumably so. Um, yeah, yeah so get, I think getting, so. Just, just the three Try captains. Try captains. It'll be him, Tyler <laughs> Adams, and Christian Pulisic. I think that's fair. Boom. Uh, he had a rather good afternoon in this rather. one, didn't he? Uh, three assists uh, for, for, um, for Erling Haaland with two goals as well. And taking corners on the reg for, mm-hmm. for Borussia Dortmund now. That's that's wonderful to see. A lot of trust being placed in the teenager uh, for this game. Uh, the, the things I wanted to pick out here in particular was Erling Haaland, who... I think is the best finisher in the world right now. As I mentioned, he, he, he'd do Man City a good job right now. I think there's no one more clinical than him. Just the range of finishes he has are superb as well. And also, the most dangerous celebrator of goals. I want to it talk seems about like this. He's always going to destroy someone yep. when he, he celebrates. He's so wild. Yep. And when he scored that first goal with, um, with, uh, with Claudio Reyna, uh, Claudio Reyna? Giovanni <laughs> Reyna giving him the assist. It wasn't Claudio. Spirit of Claudio Reyna. Spirit of Claudio Reyna. <laughs> he sort of ran to the corner flag yep. and sort of uh, almost Eric Cantona karate kicked Reyna in the face. It was inches away from a laceration on that beautiful Rainer face in that celebration he is an intense man I, I mean this is no disrespect to Gio Reyna who is 17 Holland is 20 and is also ridiculously big but it, it, it's the equivalent of like you or me scoring a goal and then like jumping into the arms of our 11 year old teammate is what it looks like it's just <laughs> he looks so much bigger than Gio Reyna and every time Reyna tries to like yeah me too and like the the third goal uh which is another great assist from Reyna uh like you could like he's trying to like steal himself for Holland inevitably turning screaming in his face and giving him a shove that I think does knock him back a yard or so but then there's also when Emery Jean scores the header off of Reyna's corner Reyna is really trying to celebrate with him and Jean is doing you know the fist pumps and the slides and everything and I was nervous <laughs> for a moment that he was just going to get trampled or run over or accidentally punched I'm worried about Gio Reyna in the celebrations Ryan you should want to put him in cotton wool don't you Wrap a little up. bit a little yeah. bit, <laughs> but, I, I, but I especially do because he's very good. Like I know I'm not, I'm not, I'm not breaking any new ground here. I think that's the second time I've said that. I'm consistently not breaking ground. Uh, but in this game, I was really, really happy with what I saw from him because in the first ten minutes, I think he's trying to do much, uh, too much, and I think that was kind of what the problem was for Dortmund in those opening thirty minutes or so. Was they're trying to play too fast. I think they were trying to get it into the feet of the strikers, get it forward really aggressively, and as a result, I think they kept getting stretched out. I think they didn't have numbers committed where they needed to. They didn't have support, and so Giorena in the opening ten minutes, I think he gives the ball away. He coughs up possession. He tries to turn and go straight out of bounds. Yeah. And I had some worries there of like, oh no, is he trying to do too much? Is this that sort of thing we kind of saw last season where there are moments where I think he was so focused on not disrupting patterns of play and the pace of play that sometimes he rushed it too much. But I think 
all of Dortmund were doing that. And I think as soon as they slowed down a little bit, and that first goal is a good example of that. It's great defensive work from Royce to just poke the ball away. Reyna picks it up, drives at the defense, but isn't rushing a shot. He's not trying to take people on. He's waiting until Holland has, and this is clearly their relationship, waiting until he's started to move into the exact right space. Reyna has a little bit of a disguised ball. It's like he's he passes the ball as he's running with his right foot. It's like he strides with the right foot, and as it comes down, he's passing in the same motion. I don't yeah. think the defense saw that coming. Haaland certainly did. Runs onto it, smashes it one time into the back of the net. I'm with you. He is an incredible finisher. He might be—he's my top two, at least. We'll talk about the other one in a moment. But I thought Reyna— Slowing it down at times, but finding the right moments and picking his spots. I thought it was a very impressive performance from him, and it made yeah. me smile quite a bit. Oh, I'm not surprised. He, he, he just looks like a player well beyond his years, doesn't he? Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. he had a really good performance, as you say, as, as the game progressed. Um, had a few good chances on his own. He seemed to be really good at finding the space between the lines there. Uh, I was very impressed on that first goal with that assist, just putting the ball perfectly into space. And that does emphasize the relationship he obviously has with Haaland. They obviously, uh, they're just completely on the same wavelength. And that was evident again uh, on the other Haaland goal, the 3-0 goal, where th- that through ball was mm-hmm. just brilliant for that finish and it was like it was it looked like Haaland was showing for him showing him where to put the ball as well and it was just wonderfully executed and a really 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 good finish as well from Haaland so yeah Borussia Dortmund uh, are back from last week congratulations (laughs) until next week when they're not back again correct Uh, they are not top of the table though they're behind Leipzig Augsburg and Eintracht Frankfurt by one point. So title races on in the Bundesliga. The team ahead of Dortmund but behind Frankfurt would be Bayern Munich, whom I knew had won this weekend. Uh, this was another game that I watched after the fact. I knew Dortmund had won as well. And in the start of this one, I thought, like, oh, this is almost the exact same thing as what we saw in Dortmund versus Freiburg. It's Bayern playing a Hertha Berlin team who are I would say much stronger than Freiburg. They've spent more money. They've got players coming in. They've already had players coming in, but still going with an, like a 4-2-2-2, very defensive, clog the middle, sit deeper, frustrate, make Bayern, create something. And this is a Bayern team that I think uh, had rotated five of their 10 starters from their midweek Superclassico game against Dortmund. So it's a slightly weaker Bayern team. You can never yeah. really say they're fully weak when Robert Lewandowski is in there. But it felt really similar of they're struggling to create. They're not really getting into the rhythm. They're missing some chances. They're a little bit sloppy in possession. Then they get a goal. Then they get another goal. And it feels like, oh, okay, here we go. This is Bayern sort of doing what Bayern do. And then realizing it finished 4-3, to three, I was very surprised and had to pay a lot more attention. Because I was ready for it to be like, ah, oh, it's 4-0, Bayern win. We know how this goes. That it finished 4-3 to three was maybe not something I saw coming. Yeah, and... Tying that uh, analysis with the fact that they're not top of the league at the moment, and um, this just feels like classic Bayern, isn't it? They're teasing us. They're teasing us. We're not. We're not as good in the first half of the season, and then we just blow everyone away in the oh, second half call. of the season. We have seen this pattern before, mm. and this was. This I felt really sorry for her to Berlin. As you say, they were well, well compacted, four four two, well organized, but also with a lot of creative players, particularly up top with Piercek, with Cordoba, with Cunha, uh, all getting in on the action in this game, and all looking very impressive. They deserved more than a 94th minute winner from the penalty spot, I thought, from this game, essentially. This was classic Bayern Dussel, as they call it. Bayern Luck, the equivalent, Mm -hmm. the German equivalent of Fergie time uh, in full action here. I felt quite sorry for them because, on balance, Bayern did have the better of this game. But 
I would have liked to have seen her to leave on the point based on that performance. Yeah, and I, I have sympathy for Maximilian Mittelstadt, who concedes that penalty at the very, very end to allow Robert Lewandowski to get his fourth goal in the game. But to your point earlier about Man City and like what would they do with Holland, what would they do with Lewandowski, this is also the importance of a player like those two men. Because here... I don't know if Lewandowski is going to be able to cross in. He goes up for it. Basically, Middlestadt has uh, Lewandowski's right arm, if you haven't seen it, and it pulls him over. So midair, it's going to look way worse because now he has he's not on the ground. So now suddenly he's gone straight up, and then he's moving at an angle because he's been pulled. So it's a an obvious penalty in my mind. Middlestadt disagrees. But I think it's also when it's Robert Lewandowski who's already on a hat trick and you're defending that, There's a, I think there's an element of fear there. There's an element of panic of, oh, no, he's going to do something. I've got to try to figure something out. And you just – you maybe your brain vacates your body for a moment and you just try to make a play. And in that instance, it's pulling him down. So it is, to me, a clear penalty. But I think it also, again, is the importance of Lewandowski. So, too, is his penalty finish, which is about as perfect as it could be. I would expect nothing less. But it's – it's just he's so very clinical and so very efficient. And I don't even mean that in, like, German jokes because he's Polish, so it doesn't count. Uh, but <laughs> just the way you can always count on him to pop up in the right moment to find a way to score. Thomas Muller as well in this game, I think, for Bayern's third. It's a long ball in that I don't know if he means to square it to Lewandowski with that first touch. He's kind of taken out as soon as he touches the ball. But even that, I think, is sort of the technical ability and the confidence in those pressurized moments that makes Bayern that next-level team. So... I really liked that. And with all of it said, I still think Chris Richards was my favorite part of this game. Future World Cup winner Chris Richards did get on the uh, help out Lewandowski Fourth for the captain. second goal. Fourth yeah. captain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. 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 So uh, good, good for him to get into the team as well and get some experience. Wonderful stuff and pretty good uh, show of himself, not just getting the assist, but um, throughout his uh, his minutes in this game. But yeah, your summary that Robert Lewandowski is good is mm-hmm. is good analysis, Taylor. Thank I you. agree. Thank you. Uh, I will say this for people who are very excited about Chris Richards. I'm going to be negative for a moment. Uh, similar to when Tyler Adams scores in the Champions League, and I remain confident that that should have been an own goal. I don't think that shot was going on frame. I will say Chris Richards gets that assist for Lewandowski, the second goal, I believe. Uh, almost gets the assist for the first one, but Robert Lewandowski gets the header on frame. It's saved, and then he scores uh, because he's good. But here, I am I am fairly confident that Richards, when he plays this ball in, is looking for Thomas Muller. Uh, he mishits it a little bit, um, and it is a pass into traffic, so I'm not necessarily like criticizing him that much, but I wish it were just like, oh, he's trying to find Robert Lewandowski and does, and it's a goal. In the end, it's, I think, ahead of Muller, but behind Lewandowski. Lewandowski adjusts, takes a touch, and it's a great finish from him. But with that said, I thought Chris Richards had an... I guess the best way to put it is like an unremarkable game in the best possible way. I didn't sure. see him stand out for getting getting beaten. He wasn't able to control the ball. He wasn't able to pass. He puts in good crosses. It was a, a solid performance. He comes out. Benjamin Pavar comes in. And then Hertz has scored two more goals. Pavar very slow to deal with the second goal that uh, Hertz has scored. And to some extent, it's like he fails to deal with it 1v1, doesn't track his runner, and then can only put in a kind of half-ditch effort at the end. So to some extent... Uh, because Chris Richards looked so good, didn't have any obvious mistakes, and then the person who comes in and replaces him doesn't necessarily cover themselves in glory. I do think it makes him stand out that much more for that reason as well. Future World Cup winner Chris Richards, better than current World Cup winner Benjamin Pavard. There you have it, ladies and gents. Nothing wrong with him putting <laughs> a, a fullback like him, putting the ball in the mixer, Mm-mm. even if he uh, unintentionally was going for the Raum Deuter. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and I think also worth remembering that he is. 
I believe by by trade a center back and in the yep. second half he seemed to have gotten the uh the adjustment of stay more central, go wide when we're in possession, especially in the attack, but defensively stay central, stay compact, almost be part of a back three more so than get focused on the attack. And I think Pavar was not given that same instruction or wasn't doing the same thing. And I think that also explains a little bit more of that defensive vulnerability. Not saying that Chris Richards is therefore better than Benjamin Pavar, but implying that he might be. How about that, right? Typical Total <laughs> Soccer Show, Taylor. When Hansi Flick tells his fullback to go central, we praise him. When Ole Gunnar Solskjaer does it, we criticize him. Yeah, well, I'm not even going to get into that because I'll just get angry <laughs> again. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Now let's talk for a moment about a thing I'm less excited about and more so confused about. Let's talk Juventus-Napoli. I love Daryl Grove for sending me some ideas of like what he thought might be interesting to keep an eye on, what the tactics could be, what Weston McKinney's role might be. Uh, And then here we are with that game not happening because Napoli do not show up is the gist. Juve are there. The standard practice would then be Napoli get a uh, a 3-0 forfeit and a points deduction for failure to show up. But the reality of the situation is much more complicated. Ryan, do you feel like you can give us a summary? Would you like me to keep going and then you can explain why things are confusing? You You keep going on this train and I'll just continue to be confused. Fair. So the the basic thing here is that uh, in the week leading up to this game, Napoli have two players test positive for coronavirus, which is not good. The standard practice, though, right now in Syria, as I understand it, is that you quarantine those players, you remove them from the competition. But as long as you have, is it 13 players? 
13, yes. Yeah, as long as you have 13 outfield players or fit players, then the game will continue on. Napoli, I think, uh, to their credit, were preparing to travel to Turin for this game. Uh, but then, due to those tests, due to the possible spread that could happen afterwards, uh, their argument is that different uh, uh, health authorities in Italy, and specifically in the sort of region, say, you're not permitted to travel. We're not letting you go. You have to stay. Serie A, for their part, have kind of had this agreement where as long as you've got those outfield players, as long as everything else is done responsibly, as long as tests are what they are, then you have to play. So now we have the Italian health authorities allegedly telling Napoli, you can't go. We have Serie A saying, no, you definitely should go and will go or you're in trouble. And now we're at a bit of an impasse because Napoli were not able to go. Juventus do show up. They approach the game as though it's a normal game because you have to so you don't get that points deduction. Uh, Napoli's owner, Aurelio De Laurentiis, is now in a feud with Juve's owner because the Juve owner said if it were our situation, we would have played. But it's all a bit confusing and maybe is another example of how things needed to be figured out. Or maybe we should be playing quite yet, given that coronavirus is still very much around. Yeah, this was not exactly A-plus leadership from Syria, mm-hmm. I would argue, in this whole situation, with the TLDR being that uh, the Napoli's local health authority said they couldn't travel, so yep. they didn't yet uh, the league very much expecting them to play, Juventus likewise, and we had this surreal theatre yeah. uh, uh, of Juventus putting on the floodlights, playing the match day music, uh, you know, the team training on the field as if Napoli were about to come on the field with them. They're still very much many miles away in southern Italy, nowhere near yeah. uh, uh, Turin. Uh, and uh, just very strange coverage of uh, awaiting, uh, I think there was, a, there was a graphic on the TV coverage, awaiting away team to arrive on there. They're not going to arrive. Yeah. They're not going to arrive in this game. So uh, yeah, It's not like our amateur level will have those moments where if we have like an 11 a.m. kickoff, our team is there. You look across the field and the other team has three people warming up and you think <laughs> maybe they're going to have some late arrivals, but this feels like it's not going to happen. Yeah. I do like the idea of the Juve players all warming up very seriously, expecting Napoli to just, I don't know, like come out of the dirt or something or just uh, uh, like reveal themselves to have been there the whole time. But in the end, that is definitely not what happened. <laughs> indeed, indeed. If only they're in the US where you don't really have to uh, quarantine, you can get out of hospital in two days if you've had serious coronavirus that's my understanding of the current situation but hey we are we're in italy Mm -hmm. and it looks like juventus uh be awarded a three nil win for this game which you know that could have happened on the field who knows yeah yeah we'll never know it may well could have uh napoli for their part have said they will appeal any decision that uh penalizes them with that uh three points but then also if there is a points deduction or something like that obviously they're going to appeal it as well and it's worth remembering just to give a tiny bit more background here uh their last opponent napoli was genoa they played them genoa had two positive tests at that point so those two players were not involved uh they were quarantined but now i believe the squad has 15 uh no 15 more so 17 coronavirus uh, positive tests for Genoa. So I think the idea amongst the Napoli officials was if that's the way it went for Genoa, we already have two stands to reason that if this team travels, if they're still together, it's going to spread. They could infect other people. So there is a limiting approach there. It just sounds like basically Napoli listened to the medical authorities. Juve listened to Serie A. And neither one necessarily thinks they're wrong. But I don't know how we resolve this because Serie A are going to do Serie A things. So I guess we'll just have to keep an eye on it uh, and see where we go from here. But maybe not the result we were hoping for, not the game that we were hoping for from Juve Napoli. 
Definitely not the game we were hoping for, no. in that it wasn't a game, yes. Yes. So let's instead talk about Barcelona-Sevilla, a game that finishes 1-1, and I want to start with that result. Serginho Dest does play, will continue to play, it seems. We're going to talk about him uh, in a moment. But I was really surprised by this because we know Barcelona have not had a great season. We know that they're a a club that are in more than a little bit of flux or a state of chaos, whichever one you want to go with. So to go up against a Sevilla team that are a very good Sevilla team and come away with a one-to-one draw, I don't think they were excellent in this game. I think there are definitely still a lot of areas of concern and vulnerability. But I didn't think this was a bad result. And yet the commentators on the uh, on the network that I was watching it on all were sort of like, oh, another disastrous. Like my, my wife was like, are Barcelona like getting relegated or something? What's wrong? And I was like, <laughs> what do you mean? Because I had walked out of the room. It was still on. And she was like, they're saying this is like the worst they've played. And it was a really, really bad game. And they don't know what's wrong with Barcelona. Like what? Like she was really into it, and I was mostly just confused as to how that narrative had happened because I thought it was a a decent result given all things that have happened with Barcelona and with Sevilla being as strong as they have been. Ryan, where were you on this result? Was it good? Was it bad? Was it somewhere in between? Well, when your wife said uh, a Barcelona getting relegated or something, mm-hmm. I hope you said no, dear. It's my team who are in the relegation battle right now. You're getting a bit confused. My team are in Manchester in England. They're in the relegation battle. Manchester United, not Barcelona, Manchester United. I hope you made that clear. Um, But to to your point here on this game, oh, you've gone quiet, sorry. (laughs) Barcelona, I I think this is par for the course, this game. Um, Dead to (laughs) me. There it is. Dead to me. I think This this is is all because I make MK Don's jokes. And you know what? There's going to be more now. I hope you're happy. Oh, you're just going to get more back. I fight fire with fire. That's how I roll, bro. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and and I think I think MK Don's very much like that whole situation, at least somewhat in the past. The Manchester United one is probably going to cut a little bit deeper for a while. <laughs> I hope so. Anyway, as I was saying, Sevilla, um, I think there's no shame in dropping points to this team at the moment. Let's not forget they gave Bayern Munich a pretty Mm -hmm. darn good run in the Super Cup. And as you say, this is a Barcelona team who are, uh, in air quotes, rebuilding. And this is a Sevilla team who are arguably very much at the peak of their powers in this, uh, what mm-hmm. we, what I would like to call the Rakitic Derby, which no one else will call it that. That's <laughs> the fine. The Rakitic Derby. I will absolutely <laughs> call it that from now on. Thank but, you for that, Ryan Bailey. But Sevilla, I thought, you know, as much as Barcelona <laughs> might have been a little bit sloppy in this game, uh, I thought, you know, Milan Planic was made, made a lot of uh, good, positive change to the team when he came on in this game, but so they were all very good. They they were pressing Barcelona quite a lot, pressing them on the edge of their box quite a bit, and I think Pjanic helped uh, with that with that pressure they were putting on quite a bit. But as I say, I, I'm going around in circles here, but no shame. Uh, in drawing with Seville here. I don't think uh, your wife is correct when uh, she says that Barcelona are getting relegated. Once again, that's Manchester United who are in the relegation battle. All right, first of all, hurtful still. Second of all, I think probably part of that reaction is informed by the fact that what Sevilla go ahead in the eighth minute, courtesy of Luke de Jong, uh, Coutinho pulls one back in the tenth, and it feels for a moment like this is going to be Man United Spurs or or Villa Liverpool. Like, oh, it's going to be a ton more goals, and then there are no more. So maybe that's part of it. Um, But I also think for me, I was probably a little bit more optimistic. I tweeted this. It was very weird that normally when I'm watching this type of game, I'm not rooting against Barcelona necessarily because I have no reason to do that. But it's just like you're always looking at it, I think, when you are a complete neutral from a like, oh, maybe Barcelona will score, but maybe they won't in a one-to-one draw. What does that mean for them? And it was odd to watch it with Sergio Dest on the field, like really cheering for Barcelona. Like there's a moment in the 85th minute where they have what seems like a very clear-cut chance 
And I was into it because I wanted it to be like, Serginho Desk comes on and they get the result and maybe he's part of that turnaround. Like, it's, it's a strange world to be actively rooting for Barcelona. I don't know if you have that because I guess you don't have quite as much affinity for, for Serginho Dest because you continue to support that other national team for reasons. <laughs> Correct. I'll get there one day. Don't worry, Taylor. When I get my citizenship, we'll get there one day. But yeah, uh, interesting game. This well, question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you think Barcelona suffer more than other teams without fans because they have got like the biggest stadium and their fans are quite loud and stuff? I wouldn't say more than other teams necessarily because, like, the commentator in that Leeds uh, City game, I think it was Gary Neville in the in the one that I was watching, was saying, like, how much different would it be if this stadium were full? Would Leeds have found a winner because they have that extra drive? I, I think to some extent Barcelona probably would get, you know, just that extra level. Yeah. Maybe they would have found a winner here. But simultaneously, I also think with how bad things have been, that I do kind of buy into that idea that maybe fans would have been booing, would have been more frustrated. Maybe you have some players who don't deserve it getting even more boos, and then that builds more tension and negativity. So in some ways, yes, I think it would hurt them and in some or help them. And in some ways, I think it could also be a little bit of a blessing in disguise. Though I think fundamentally, you want a bunch of people cheering you on. It's always yeah. going to make you play better. You also want uh, your players to stay fit, unfortunately, slash fortunately for Jordi Alba, that is not the case substitutes out with a hamstring injury the confirmation is that he will be out for at least a little while and since Sergio Dest does come in it stands to reason that he will continue to be their starting left back until Jordi Alba returns and I thought in terms of players who came on and had an impact I thought uh uh Sergio Dest was quite good I thought Antoine or excuse me I thought uh, Pedri was okay when he comes on for Ansu Fati same thing for Pjanic as you said I thought Trincao was not good. I I don't know if maybe I just like focused on some of his moments and maybe he had better ones when I wasn't necessarily paying as much attention, but he just, I felt like he, I didn't see him complete a pass for a solid five minute period, except to pass it to Sevilla. And I thought he was kind of wasteful in possession. He seemed to give the ball away when dribbling. He seemed to kind of give the ball away when passing. I did not think he did very well. And then by contrast, I just highlight that to say Serginho Dest, again, similar to Chris Richards, doesn't stand out in a negative way. And if anything, I felt like, oh, here we go. Like, you've got an attacking fullback now who's coming in for Jordi Alba. Ansu Fati, when they're on the field together, they seem like they're combining well. This is going to be exciting. I, I was excited by what I saw from from Serginho Dest, and I think he will bring good things to Barcelona. I was sort of apprehensive because he wasn't even necessarily an out-and-out starter for Ajax. So... I, I had some of my nerves calmed from this game. Uh, that's where I am with this one. That's my big takeaway from Desk was just that he looked good on the ball, calm in possession, tried to do some things, but wasn't overly elaborate. So I thought overall a, a good debut for Sergio Dest in Barcelona. Agreed, yeah. And one fewer dispossession than Chris Richards in that he had zero dispossessions. So there we very go. good stuff there. And you mentioned uh, how the crowd might have been booing uh, if there were a crowd in this game at some point. Can you imagine... If there was a crowd at Old Trafford for that game, by the way, sorry to come back to it again, there might have been, you know, the kind of raucous noise you might hear at a library sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> it took me a minute to get that joke. Thank you for that. I don't know what they would have done. Because, I mean, it's, uh, it, is, it is the case that I'm, I'm assuming they would have booed. But Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is so beloved, I think still. I don't know because it's been so long since we've had fans around. Uh, it seems like he is... Not everybody's favorite manager, but isn't necessarily 
the person that everyone's pointing to as being the problem. I think that's very much more Ed Woodward. So I'm guessing yeah. he would have gotten a lot of booing and a lot of anger thrown his way. He didn't look particularly pleased even in an empty stadium. So in a full stadium yelling at him, I'm guessing he would have been uh, doubly unpleasant. I would be saying booerns. <laughs> booerns. Indeed. Well, you have an opportunity to say Bourne's when we talk about the Champions League, when Woo. it gets underway. But the draw has happened. We haven't yet discussed it on the show. So Ryan and I are just going to kind of run through it really quickly. We'll give thoughts if we have any about a group and then we'll move on to the next one. Let's start with Group A, Atletico Madrid, Bayern Munich, Lokomotiv Moscow, and Red Bull Salzburg. I had a moment where I needed to check which uh, RB team that was, forgetting that RB Leipzig are not Red Bull. So that is indeed Red Bull uh, Salzburg there, which could have uh, an American or two playing for them. Uh, Maybe Brendan Aronson by the time those games happen. But I'm inclined to think that this is Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid going through. I think we know who's advancing to the knockout phase in this group. End of story. Agreed. Even if Atleti lose Thomas Partey, which again seems like a distinct possibility at time of recording, they may still try to bring in some players before the deadline closes. We shall see, but I think they probably still have enough in this group. Let's talk Group B. Borussia Mönchengladbach, Inter Milan, Real Madrid, Shakhtar Donetsk. This is one of the groups that I'm most excited for pretty much every single game. I think there's, there's something happened in the draw that Shakhtar weren't drawn with Man City in their group, but uh, they ended up it's in odd. this group regardless. But yeah, this one a little bit more open. Uh, I think we can safely, relatively safely assume that Real Madrid are going to go through in this group, but yep. I can't call that second space. Inter Milan is what uh, is what your your head would tell you, but mm-hmm. I know I could see Borussia Mönchengladbach doing some damage here too. I think so, because I think you could see them do well at home, uh, I don't know if there will be fans. I haven't looked into if the Champions League is allowing fans or if they're going with like whatever your local federation does or if it's just none across the board. But I still think Gladbach can get some results and cause some problems for teams that are a bit more structured, like Inter Milan, who are going to play in a specific way under Antonio Conte. Yeah. That said, Inter Milan have a number of good players and should be just fine. I do think those two will be taking points off of each other. But Shakhtar Donetsk always find a way to get results, always end up playing Man City. And if that's going to happen, it will have to be in the knockout round. So (laughs) you can't count them out either. Uh, So I think there will be some surprises here. I'm with you that I think Real Madrid will be safe, which probably means they will not. And instead it will be like Gladbach and Shakhtar Donetsk. But uh, until we know that that happens, I'm inclined to say Real Madrid and then chaos. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we want. Group stage chaos, baby. Yeah. What about Group C? Man City, Olympiacos, Marseille and Porto. Uh, yeah, this one's interesting, isn't it? I think Manchester City will see them go through. Uh, it does seem like the kind of caliber of competition they sometimes slip up uh, against mm-hmm. uh, in this competition. So we have to be wary of that. Porto, who seem to constantly sell their best players, but still do very well. Alex Tellez uh, being the latest one of those to uh, depart for Pastors New. I don't know. Is, yeah. it, is it a Porto? <laughs> uh, is it a City Porto one two here? You thinking? I don't know. I mean, I I think your point is well taken that like Man City, this is like some of these teams are teams that they'll occasionally drop a point or or lose to like outright. I still think that Olympiacos will take points off Marseille, will take points off Porto, who will take points off of Olympiacos. And I think those two teams, those three teams will battle it out for that second spot. And even if City do drop a few points here and there, I still think they will win this group by a decently wide margin. Yeah, I would think so. Maybe I'm just saying about getting in trouble because I'm 
conflating Marseille with Lyon a little bit there. My apologies. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing you will not do that in Group D since there are no French teams. Checks to make sure there are no French teams in Group D. <laughs> but there is Ajax, there is Atalanta, there is Liverpool, and there is Michelin. Uh, and I think we both agree that it's going to be Michelin on top and then the other three competing for the second spot. Quite right, yes. Yeah. Uh, I am really looking forward to Liverpool-Atalanta in this So group. much. So That's much. That's going to be amazing, isn't it? Yes, because Ajax have the interesting like like rebuilding season. Who do they bring in? Who are the academy players that are going to be the next players that everybody buys for seventy million? Uh, so I think they'll still be just fine. But given what we've seen from Liverpool in the Champions League in the Premier League this weekend, notwithstanding, we would expect them to be a very fun team to watch and get some big results. But then Atalanta, they've lost some players. I still don't think that that's going to fundamentally change the way they play. And I think that Liverpool-Atalanta game is going to be great. I think any game with Ajax in it is going to be fun to watch. And Michelin, I, I am not nearly as familiar with, obviously. I don't know if they will be fun or not. But I still think there's a lot of appointment television in Group D. I'm Definitely. pretty pumped about and, uh, that one, too. Liverpool-Atalanta, by the way, is being staged on my birthday, a.k.a. the first game also being staged at New Pearl Lane for AFC Wimbledon, a.k.a. Uh, the 3rd of November, a.k.a. something else happening in that day. <laughs> I think Ryan just wants us all to know that his birthday is November 3rd and we should all remember it and put it in our calendars. Can I put my Amazon wish list on here later? You may. <laughs> as long as it's only MK Dons related. How about that? Uh, group E, Woo! Chelsea, Krasnodar, Rennes, and Sevilla. I don't know how Sevilla will win the Europa League and advance out of this group, but I, I do have <laughs> Sevilla finishing in the top two for sure. I think in the top one. You think? Absolutely. Why not? Why? I mean, I because think because only... of the aforementioned desire to get into the Europa League, <laughs> <laughs> we got to win it somehow. Uh, I mean, I think Chelsea with the win this weekend, we'll, we'll have to wait and see if that is them sort of figuring it out. Of Frank Lampard, we'll be able to get the best out of them. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I could see Chelsea finishing second to Sevilla. I could see Sevilla finishing second to Chelsea. You never know with Ren and Krasnodar. Uh, Krasnodar, excuse me. Uh, in Group F. Borussia Dortmund, Club Bruges, Lazio, Zenit, St. Petersburg. This is, I feel like a lot of hipster teams going on in this one. <laughs> You're quite right there. Hipster yeah, slash the... fascist. <laughs> yeah, quite opposite ends of the scale. A bit. Uh, uh, politically speaking, arguably. A but uh, yeah, I think we're going to be fairly clear that Borussia Dortmund will uh, uh, progress from this group. Yeah. I'm not so sure about, I don't, I don't know enough about Zenit these days to give a yep. proper opinion on them, do you? No, I don't. I, th- maybe that's one that we'll have to research a little bit when the yeah. Champions League gets closer to kicking off. Uh, but yeah, I think Lazio, with the strong season they had, we had David Amoyal on the show a couple weeks ago who was saying that he expects them to still be just as strong. Maybe right. not quite as strong, but right around there. So I, I would lean Dortmund-Lazio if I were making predictions for this one. But you could easily talk to me into Zenit St. Petersburg uh, if you wanted to, Ryan. But I'm guessing you don't right now. I'm guessing instead you'd yeah. rather talk Group G, Barcelona, well, Dinamo Kiev, Ferencvaros, and Juventus. The oh Dest boy. versus McKinney derby that we all knew was coming in the Champions League. <laughs> Here it is. This is a pretty good group, isn't it? I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah. You can never uh, discount a trip to Ukraine uh, for, to, to cause some trouble for these big teams. And certainly it's an inconvenience. And it's going to be a bigger inconvenience this season for these teams with such a trunk, uh, a, a, a squash down fixture yeah. list that we're having. I think that's that could really put the spanner into work because these long distance trips that are going to be happening in this Champions League group stage. So that'll be interesting to watch. And also to, uh, to it's, it's Bulgaria, isn't it, for Kvaros? Am I mistaken? Uh, I think it's... Is it Hungary or Bulgaria? It's Hungary, excuse me. Yeah. Excuse, mm-hmm. yeah. But either way, Eastern European trip, which could also be a little bit tricky. But yeah. I think we know who's coming out of this. 
Yes, Destin McKinney. They're the only two. <laughs> Final group, Group H. Best two uh, last. Istanbul BB, Istanbul Başakşehir, Manchester United, Paris, uh, PSG, and RB Leipzig. Woof. That's the best yeah. group, isn't it? Is yes. this the group of death? I think so. Because Istanbul BB, first of all, are like the cast-off team of the century. There's a lot of players that you would recognize in there and be like, oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Uh, and I think they also have a very... If they have fans, if people are allowed to attend, I think it will be a raucous atmosphere. I think even if they're not, uh, some teams are going to be met at the airport. I think it will still be an intimidating situation to play in, and I wouldn't be surprised if they spring a couple surprises. Uh, PSG, quite good, even if Thomas Tuchel is still frustrated that they haven't uh, really reinforced much this season. Leipzig are going to do Leipzig things, I would expect, given that they are, I believe, top of the Bundesliga at time of recording. I think they will continue to be just fine. I think there's a decent chance that Manchester United finish third. I think there's a decent chance they finish fourth based on their current form. I don't think it gets much better for them, at least not in the short term. And I think PSG will be fine. I think they won't have the kind of challenges that other teams will when it comes to their domestic competition. I think Leipzig will have a style and a system and depth enough to deal with the challenges of the Champions League. I don't know if the same can be said of Manchester United. I'd be sweating if I was a Manchester United fan right now. Because, I mean, look at the Istanbul, it's actually uh, a squad, as you say, uh, there's Rafael Hill's in there. Uh, Nasser mm-hmm. Chadley's playing for them at the moment. Martin mm-hmm. Skirtle is in there. Demba Barr is up front for them as well. I don't know where Ryan Barber is. I assume he's coming in at some point. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a, it is a who's who in that squad. So uh, given current situation, that seems like a trickier way day for Man United for sure. You will get no arguments from me, my friend. Yeah, I think it will be just to round out a sad show for Manchester United fans. This feels more like the season that Chelsea had in Mourinho's second last stint with them uh, in which or last game where it was basically like oh they're actually kind of staying closer to the relegation zone pretty consistently I think Man United will still get results here and there because they've spent a lot of money and have a lot of players but I would not back them to do particularly well in the Champions League Uh, I look forward and hope I am wrong though I don't think I will be yeah, and just a couple of weeks away this starts. Liverpool are taking on Ajax in just on the 21st in just two weeks' time. Two weeks' time? Yeah. What's time anyway? Flat circle. Anyway, it's happening <laughs> soon, and it only just feels like it ended. Wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. Indeed, wonderful stuff from you, Ryan Bailey. We have gone long as we are wont to do, though this week, I feel like this weekend justified that for sure. Uh, anything else you would like to discuss before we call uh, this one quits? No, looking forward to uh, covering Fulham 7-0 win next weekend. <laughs> as do I. Until then, Ryan Bailey, thank you very much for talking all the soccers with me today. It's going to be a very good win, seeing as it's an international break as well, by the way. I'll add that. So, but, uh, but thank you, Taylor. Always a pleasure. Never a joke. Oh,